Hey, we, uh, we have a blessing today um, I would like to share with you. Uh, Principal Mike D'Amico of St. Edward's Catholic Church is here to greet us, uh, and uh, he wanted to share a few things. So, Mike, if you would, if you would come. Um, as you know, they have been uh, meeting here through the week for school while their building is undergoing, at the moment, asbestos abatement. And, um, and so he has a few things he would like to say to us. Um, my name is Mike D'Amico. I'm the principal at St. Edward's Catholic School and Preschool. And uh, we've been here for a little while, so the, the first thank you goes to say that uh, thank you for allowing us to invade your school and your building. Um, it's, been a, it's been a wild trek. And uh, to say the least, it's been uh, a little bit different than I thought it would be. But uh, when we found and heard that uh, they were going to close the school due to financial stress and strain, um, I was told a couple of days before we were to tell the teachers and had it go public. And um, once when I found out, I went home and uh, my wife knew I was going down to the diocesan offices. And uh, when I got home, she asked me what I thought. And I said, you know, for some, they're going to close it. They're going to close the school. And I said, but I don't, I don't think it's over. Just, there was just something, it just didn't feel final. And I said, it, it's, it's not over. I don't think it's over. Um, so we met with everyone that Saturday, that very next day. And uh, the, this is where the miracle started. Um, we asked on behalf of the kids and the teachers if we can give it a try. They, we were on the ropes for $600,000 to open the building with the work that needed to be done. And uh, usually when it's something that huge, uh, it, it's just a done deal. They're just not going to do it. So we were given permission to, they needed $400,000 in a few days to open the building. So from that Saturday afternoon to that next Wednesday, just a few days later, they had almost $500,000 cash in hand. By the end of the week, they had, it just, it started creeping a little bit closer to six. Um, so that was the second part of the miracle was the money. The, then the question came, well, where are we going to go? You, we've got these kids. Where are we going to go? So um, the other and the third phase of the miracle was when Pastor Joe and you opened your doors and your arms to let us in. And that single-handedly saved probably our, at least a third of our population in terms of the school. Um, and we were driven by the fact that we were going to turn away just about 120 kids. So this saved us. So I wanted to say, with all humility, thank you very much. There will be more coming, and we will be, you guys will forever be in our history. So thank you so much. And um, if you see me roaming around, stop by. Uh, I hope we haven't stressed you out too much, but uh, come around and you get a hug from a kindergartner. So. Uh, and, uh, it's truly amazing, so I won't take any more of your time, but I thought I would tell you thank you. Um, and uh, uh, 
if you if you want to stop by and see what we're doing, that would be great. And the, uh, we're loving it. We're just loving it. So uh, I'll end with this little story. We were touring the building with the parents, and we had a little first or kindergartner, and he was saying, well, where are we going to go? When, when, when are we going to go back? And uh, I, d I don't know where they come up with this stuff. And he goes, we said, well, we'll be back together, and we'll be back pretty soon. And he said, uh, no, I like it here. It's air-conditioned here. <laughs> I, I, I want... <laughs> I want to stay here, and I go, <laughs> okay, we're not on the same page here, so uh, uh. anyway, thank you very much, and uh, stop by sometime, and uh, uh, we, we truly appreciate it, so have a great day. Thank you so much. Thanks, brother. Mm. Well, uh, sometime I'll have to share with you the box of... Uh, letters and cards and stuff I've gotten from all the kids. Uh, they're pretty sweet as well. Um, that is, uh, I think that is a credit to you all and uh, your understanding of a, of a need that our neighbors and friends have and uh, extending yourselves and, and uh, your building to meet it. Um, so it's been, it's been a blessing to watch that happen and, and to see what God is doing through this is, is pretty amazing. Uh, this morning, I just want to tell you this morning that we're going to address a very serious topic. Uh, you know, normally the way that I do my messages, the way I like to do my messages, is to find a book of scripture we haven't studied together yet and study it together uh, a little at a time. Uh, but we're in a series right now called The Big Questions, uh, answering the big questions that people, as you interact with them and as you share the gospel with them, that they have about what Christianity believes and about how we should respond to, to those questions. And so uh, this, uh, this sermon series is for two groups of people. It is, first of all, uh, for people who are within our church who have some of these questions and would like to have answers to them uh, because God is not afraid of our questions. In fact, he has uh, written to us voluminously through the apostles and prophets uh, that we might have good answers to lots of the questions about every area of life, uh, but also that as you interact with people and as you share the gospel with folks, uh, as we're on our 2018 by 2018 journey, uh, by the way, just to give you an update, quick update, we're about 850 people into that. So we're almost halfway. Uh, we've got two years left. Uh, we've shared the gospel with about 850 people in a variety of contexts. We've got several more opportunities to do that with Trunk or Treat, uh, with uh, our Wild Game Feast in March, with uh, some other things we've got planned for the next year. Uh, and then also with each of you having opportunities through your workplace or through uh, your neighborhood or through your own family to also share the gospel. Uh, but these questions will come up. And Peter said in 1 Peter 3.15, uh, that you should always be ready to give an answer to everyone who asks you concerning the hope that you have. And we do have the, the last best hope of humanity in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And one of the questions that people have is about sexuality. And so we want to address, excuse me, some of that today. And uh, before we do that, we're going to need the Holy Spirit to help us. And so let's pray and ask for his empowerment and enablement as we study these things.
God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have spoken to us clearly in your word through the apostles and the prophets upon which our faith is built about all kinds of areas of life uh, from who you are and how to be in relationship with you to also, Father, addressing for us very intimate details of life, uh, speaking to the inner person and to the, uh, the most intimate desires that we have. And Father, uh, we pray that your Holy Spirit would pervade this place, that it would fill each person here to understand the words spoken and to bring their lives into conformity with it. And Father, we ask uh, that you in this service, as in all things, might be glorified. And we ask in Jesus' name and through your Holy Spirit, amen. Well, in our culture right now, we are in a very similar situation to where the church was in the first century when the New Testament was being written. Uh, in the pagan culture of the ancient Roman Empire, there were very few strictures on sexuality, especially male sexuality. Uh, pornographic art and literature was openly produced and displayed in Roman homes. Uh, prostitution was open, legal, and permissible. Uh, most Roman men made use of prostitutes of both sexes and often kept mistresses of both sexes. Uh, gay marriage was also known and sometimes celebrated, as it was in the case of the Roman Emperor Nero, who uh, took one of his courtiers, a man named Sporus, had him emasculated, and then dressed as a bride whom he married in a public wedding ceremony, and who uh, appeared with Nero as his empress for the rest of his life. In fact, where sex is concerned, the major cultural difference between non-Christian America today and pagan Rome back then is that now we do not restrict our promiscuity to men. Uh, now it's an equal opportunity sin. And the reason I bring all of this up is simply to say this, that the church has been here before. The church has been here before, speaking into a culture with a set of values that are alien to the culture in which it finds itself. And the challenges that we as Christians today face with reference to sex are not new. Pagan Romans are just as inclined to consider Christian teaching on sexuality as nonsense as pagan Americans are today. But we nonetheless possess answers to our society's questions about these things that are still just as sound, just as wise, and just as true as they were right now. They're just as true back then as they, as, they, uh, as they are now. Just as true now as they were back then. And right now, the hot button issue in our culture, the hot button issue in our culture right now is, is Christianity anti-gay? And I want to answer that. And my answer is threefold. First of all, it depends on what you mean by gay. And it depends on what you mean by anti. And it depends on what you mean by Christianity. And I want to flesh that out a little by looking at what the New Testament has to say on these things. And by way of answering the first one, I'd like you to turn with me uh, over to the book of Galatians, chapter 2, verse 20. The book of Galatians. All right. Galatians is a great book. 
Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, this is what Paul says. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In this passage, uh, we have a statement of Paul's identity. And that's critical. Because the, where the big challenge is coming right now in our culture is on that issue of who are you and how do you identify yourself as a person. Uh, as wildly promiscuous as the Romans were, they had no terms in Latin that could be used to describe a person as being homosexual. Their words instead referred to the nature of the acts, not to the people engaged in them. And by the reason I bring that up is because this is a new phenomenon. This is what is new in our culture. Uh, historically speaking, homosexual uh, activity was something that you did. It was not something that you were. And today, we have a challenge, a new challenge as the church, because now people assert that what they do with their bodies defines who they are as people. And it has become, if you will, the first adjective, the one that you use to define everything else that you are. And so people will introduce themselves with the word gay or lesbian or bi or transgender or any of a host of other New, uh, you know, new terms that have been created to describe what people do with their lives. And a person's sexuality is now defined, uh, and, it, and it gives, and, it, and they are using that part of their life to give them meaning and shape, and it has become their identity, if you will. And that's the term that people, in fact, use more and more. They talk about, we talk about things that are brand new now, like your gender identity and which pronouns you would like to be introduced <laughs> with and these kinds of things. That's more common on college campuses than it is in the wider culture, but it is coming into the wider culture. And your identity is regarded as something as fixed and unchangeable as the tide. This is who I am. Remember the Lady Gaga song, I was born this way. That is what the culture believes. And what Paul says in contrast to that is this. I have been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. And you'll notice that his identity has nothing to do with sex and everything to do with Christ. And if you look at it phrase by phrase, what you'll see is as it begins with, I have been crucified with Christ. That means that Paul says, I am dead. When Christ hung on the cross, bleeding and suffocating on his own blood, I died with him. My 
sin put him there and my life, my old way of living hung there with him. I am identified with him. And everything about my old life is also dead. In Philippians uh, chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, he gives a list of things he could boast about. I won't have you turn there. I'll just read it to you. He says, he says, before I met Jesus, this is how I would have identified myself. This would have been my identity. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews in regard to the law of Pharisee as to zeal persecuting the church, as to righteousness under the law, faultless. These things were his identity. They were the adjectives Paul would use to describe himself before he met Jesus. And now that he has met Jesus, he says that all these things were put to death for him in the death of Jesus. And he says, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. It's like that scene in every spy movie. Maybe you guys don't watch spy movies, but I love spy movies. And they gather up all of the stuff of the new super spy's old life, right? They get his report cards, his birth certificate, his social security card, uh, his permanent record from school, which was I was always afraid of, right? If you get in trouble, it'll go on your permanent record. You know, I don't know who gets that, right? Is that like go to the government? You go on a list somewhere? But anyway, you, you, they would gather all of these things, birth certificate, report card, everything, bank account information, credit cards, etc., and they incinerate all of that. And then anything that's digital out there, they erase. And it's like the old person never existed. And they get a new identity, right? Now you are not, you know, Joe Horn, born 1973 in Indianapolis, Indiana. Now you are John Smith, born Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania, 1973, July 20th, right? And they, and they give you a new identity, and the old person is like they never existed. And Paul is saying the same kind of thing here. That when we come to Christ, we burn down all of our old ways of life. Everything that defined us before we knew him and we get a new identity. And it's one word, Christian. Christ has given him new life, a new identity. And the, everything about the old one has passed away as unimportant. And the life that we now live, we live by faith in Christ who loved us and died in our place on the cross. And the old us, along with all of our old identities, whether strictly religious like Paul or wildly immoral like so many in our culture, and in fact so many of us before we met Jesus, that all of our old identities are put to death in the death of Christ, that Christ might live his life in us. And so here's what I'm saying by way of answering this question. That Christianity is, in fact, a competing identity. It is one that, as you follow Christ, what we are seeking to do is to replace everything that belongs to the past. Everything that we were as a person before we met Jesus with a new identity of being a Christian, being a, where the term comes from, from Greek, it means little 
Christ, a little Jesus, a little model of what Jesus is. We get a new identity. And taking that new label on through faith in Christ does transform our lives from the inside out. And it does put to death every other competing identity, whatever that is. But Christ does not do that because he hates us, but because he loves us. And he has given his life for us. Amen? And the whole reason that Christ came to die on the cross as our substitute is because he loves us. And he does not want us to experience the penalty that is due to us because of the things that we have done that do define us prior to meeting him. Amen? That the penalty of sin is paid in the death of Christ. And he has paid it because he loves us. Now let's move on to the second part of the answer here. What do you mean by anti? Well, if you look at your outline, what you'll see there is I've highlighted two scriptures that have become cultural flashpoints in recent years. Uh, Romans chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, and 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. And I want to read those and, and then address the feeling that so many people have that believing those scriptures to be true automatically makes those of us who are Christians into bigots and haters. And so I want to read, first of all, uh, Romans chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. And then I want to put them in context for you, because context matters what Paul is addressing. So Romans chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Paul writes these words, For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations with, for, for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Now, you'll notice here in those verses that Paul highlights both lesbian relationships as well as gay relationships, and that he describes them both with the following adjectives, dishonorable, contrary to nature, shameless acts, error. And, doing so in the and he's doing so in the context of a discussion about why God's wrath is being revealed. That's verse 18. And he's talking about, verses 18 to 32, how, how people in their sinfulness swap the knowledge of God and obedience to God for what they want to do and the gods they want to worship. Verses 18 to 32, that's what Paul is talking about. Um, and what Paul is saying is, is that as people pursue their own way of living and their own acts of rebellion against God, of which these are only an example, that there comes a point where God says, if you would like to live in rebellion against me, go ahead. Have it your way. Have it your way. You can do that, and God will let you. The problem with that is that it is self-destructive and self-damaging. And it's not so much that God sends lightning bolts down from heaven to whack people, but that by letting people go their way, they experience the consequences in their own 
life in their own bodies. And the consequences and the way that God's wrath is revealed are that they are alienated from God and they do experience the emptiness that comes living apart from him. And if you start at Romans 1.18 and read all the way through verse 32 about how wicked people become when they reject God, then a lot of people just read those verses and they look around at the culture around us and they just look at people and they go, can't you see what you're doing? Stop it. And a lot of well-meaning Christians take that approach uh, because they're frustrated with the wickedness they see around them. And some other people just stop right there and read these verses kind of in isolation and feel sad for how our culture is turning away from God and thinking in our self-righteous way. Well, that's sad, but this is what God told us in Romans was going to happen. But I think we do better when we remember the broader context, which is that these verses are there not to condemn people, but as examples of the very kinds of people whom God saves. These are examples that Paul is giving of the very kinds of people whom God saves. Look back further. Go back before that section to Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. And read those with me. For I am not ashamed of the gospel... For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And what he has just been saying as he introduces this section, in other words, is that the gospel is that which powerfully saves both Jews and Gentiles. And verses 18 to 32 in context have to do with describing the Gentile world and all of its wickedness. And then as you move into chapter 2, he's going to give the same kind of indictment in a different way of the Jewish people who are very religious and who are not wildly promiscuous like the Gentile world around him. And he's going to say, God saves both kinds of people, both the wildly sinful and the strictly religious. Both kinds of people are examples of the kinds of people that God saves. And the point is not simply to condemn wicked people to their wickedness, but to point out that the gospel is sufficient to save us all. The gospel is sufficient to save us all. And Paul's description of lesbian women and gay men is not there for their condemnation, but to highlight that these and all of the other kinds of sinfulness that are described in these verses are exactly the kind of people to whom God is offering salvation through the gospel. And if you turn with me over to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. 
Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And in context here, Paul is addressing sexual immorality in the church at Corinth. There are men in the church who are going to see temple prostitutes. And Paul is telling them that that action is something that unsaved people do. That unsaved people do. That non-Christians do. That people who don't know Christ act this way. And Paul is telling them, and he then just goes on a rant and lists a whole lot of sins in a whole wide variety. Not just sexual, but certainly sexual sins come up. You know, sexual immorality, the first one that he lists there is a a theological junk drawer term, if you will, for all kinds of non-marital sex. And adultery, of course, is more specific than that. It's sex outside of uh, sex with your mate in the context of your marriage. And then you get a phrase that in the ESV is translated, men who practice homosexuality. But it's actually, that translation actually obscures the fact that it's two terms, the word malakos and the word arsenkoitos in Greek. Now, you don't need to know those terms except to say that it's a reference to both both halves of a homosexual relationship, the active participant and the passive one. And the reason Paul mentions that is because in Greco-Roman culture, the view was that if you were the active participant, it was not immorality. And Paul's saying, no. Every kind of sexual immorality is condemned by God. It's a marker that you do not know God if you participate in these kinds of things. But it's not just sexual sin that leads to eternal death, is it? It's also greed and idolatry and stealing and drunkenness and swindling and those who revile the Lord. And again, the point is not just that sins like these lead to separation from God in hell. It is that it need not do so. It is not just that if you have done this, that you mark yourself as an unsaved person. The point of verse 11, look at the text. The point of verse 11 is that while these things might have been part of the prior lives of people in the church, they need not be any more. And it is not due to any wonderful specialness or hard work on their part, excuse me, but due to the grace of God, who through Christ saved them from the penalty of sin and also saves them from the power of sin so that they don't have to do these things anymore. 
As we put our trust in Christ, we are washed and sanctified. We are made right with God. And as Romans says, since we have peace with God. Amen? We are at peace with God. He is not at war with us anymore. We have been adopted into God's family, Ephesians tells us. And, and what that means is, is that all of our old life, to go back to Galatians, is hung on the cross with Jesus. So all of our sin, all of our unrighteousness, all of our wickedness is put on the cross with Christ and is marked, as Jesus said, finished, paid in full. And so the penalty of sin for us is canceled out. So we are not destined for God's judgment. We are not destined for separation from God in hell. We are destined for glory. But our faith needs to be shown to be real. And if we practice these things, then we cast doubt on the fact that our faith is in fact genuine. Amen? Because not only has Christ canceled out the penalty for sin, he has also canceled out the power of sin over us, where we don't have to let sin reign in our mortal bodies anymore. And if we sin, it is not because God's power is insufficient, it is because our love for sin is greater than our love for Jesus. Very simply, that's what the New Testament would tell us. And we sin not because we have to, but because we love it more than we love him. And Paul is reminding them, you don't have to do these things anymore. Because you have been, past tense, washed and sanctified and made holy by Christ's death in your place for you. And you don't have to do that anymore. So let me bottom line these verses for us. Is Christianity anti? Only in the sense that we are against slavery to things that result in death. We are pro-life and pro-freedom. Amen. We are pro-life and pro freedom and so we remain against simply allowing people to remain in slavery and slavery that leads to death we're against that we instead believe that homosexuals and lesbians and every other variety of uh, crazy label that you can put out there are people whom God loves, people for whom Christ came to die, that might, they might be set free from sin and from its penalty of death and live the new life that we can all possess through faith in Christ. Are we against this? Only because we are in favor of life and freedom and glory. And because we love them too much to allow them to go off a cliff without warning them that that's what they're doing. Amen? What do you mean by Christianity? Well, running out of time. I know I was going to burn clock today. But um, 
Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7, verses 36 to 48. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went to the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had, been in, who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered, answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when, he could not pay, when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Now, I don't have the luxury of time to really preach this passage uh, and this parable, but what I can think I can say very quickly is this, that Christianity is what we call the belief of the sinful woman and not the belief system of the Pharisee. Christianity is that system of belief that recognizes that we are sinners, that we are sinners. And then comes to Jesus recognizing that we have nothing of value to offer to him, but nevertheless possess a deep need for forgiveness. And that Jesus, seeing our need, offers forgiveness freely to us. And Christianity at its best, is also dependent on understanding that we owe a humongous debt to God, which we could never pay. No amount of our works will ever repay Christ in his death on the cross. Why? Because our sins and our wickedness is too great. We owe a humongous debt. You know, and Jesus uh, in this parable has a brilliant contrast. The, a denarius is about a day's wages. So the guy who owes 50 denarius, 50 denarii, he's thinking, you know, put in a little overtime, you know, maybe take up a side job. It might take me a year or two, but I can probably pay that back eventually. 500 denarii. 
at a time when there's no such thing as a mortgage, there are no credit cards, 500 denarii is a year and a half of what you make every day. You want to pay that back? No. There's no way. Be like, I owe $60,000 and I work at McDonald's making eight bucks. <laughs> okay. Uh, this is not going to happen. This is not going to happen. And the, the man who, uh, who loaned the money sees the need of both people, and he forgives both of them their debt. Now, the one guy, he's grateful, but the other guy who has ten times the debt is really, really, really appreciative. Amen. Because he knows he's gotten out from underneath something that he could have never in his life paid off. And Christianity is that belief system. The understanding that as we stand before God, even if we're pretty good people. You know, not all of us were, you know, totally wicked and, you know, children of hell when we uh, came to Christ, right? We're not... We're not all awful, but you know what? In the sight of God, we're all equally worthy of his judgment. And Christianity says to all of us, whatever our sin, whatever our past, whatever, you know, whatever things that we thought, well, this will really be impressive to God. It says all of those things are rubbish. All of our works, all of the things that we thought would be really impressive, like, hey, I gave money to, to the church every week, and you were also a wicked person who was condemned. That by the standards of God, God requires perfection. And the only perfect person that has ever lived is Jesus. And Jesus in his death on the cross is the money lender who cancels out our debt. And our response to him varies according to how much debt we think we were in. Christianity is the belief system of the woman who comes recognizing she's in a lot of debt. And falls at the feet of the Savior and says, I'm in need and there's no way I can get out. And Jesus says to her, your sins are forgiven. And Christianity at its best recognizes that that is true of every single one of us. Religious person, a woman who's described in the Bible as a sinner. She had lived a sinful life in that town. I don't know what that means. But she definitely had a scarlet letter next to her name. And Jesus says he forgives the debt of everybody if we put our trust in him. And he who has been forgiven little, I mean, he who believes he's been forgiven little also loves Jesus very little. And he's indicting Simon in that. And when we come recognizing our bankruptcy, we love the one who forgives our debt very 
And it is our love and gratitude for having received forgiveness that drives us to tell other people who are equally bankrupt as us where to find forgiveness too. Somebody said once upon a time that that Christianity is blind beggars telling other blind beggars where the bread is. (laughs) And that's a pretty good description, right? We have nothing to bring to God that he counts as worthy. He speaks through Isaiah and says, all your righteousness is as filthy rags. It's as filthy rags. But he invites us to come and to be cleansed and to be forgiven and to be washed. And then, having received that, he tells us in Acts chapter 1 to go into all the world and testify about what he has done for us tells us Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Let me just read it to you. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The goal is every place to every kind of people to the ends of the earth, to people who are like us and people who are not. Why? Because we know that we have been forgiven much And therefore, we also, like Jesus says in the parable, also love very much. Is Christianity anti-gay? No. Instead, what it is, is it is inviting in love, Christianity and Christians both embrace the bisexual, the lesbian, the gay, the transgender, and every other kind of person, and says to them, Come to Jesus. Come and experience freedom from sin and death and hell, just like I did. Come and escape from slavery. Come and be set free. Come and find joy and meaning and purpose. Come and find a new identity as Christ makes you a new person and makes you a whole person rather than reducing you to the sum of what you do with your body. Come be a whole, new, holy person in Christ. That's what we're about. Come and experience a new birth and a new life. Come and be born again, not in the way you think, but in the way that God designed for you to be born again. Amen? Well, since God has given salvation to such people as you and me, he has also entrusted the ministry to us of making that declaration to all people. And he calls us to befriend and to love and to share the gospel. But we will need God's empowerment to do that well. So let's pray and ask for his enablement. God, our Heavenly Father, we are, as I said, blind beggars telling the other blind beggars in the world where to find the bread. And Father, we thank you that you are the God who gives sight to the blind, healing to the lame, life to the dead. Because we were, as Paul says, dead in our transgressions and sins, but you have brought us to life through faith in the Son. 
who died in our place, took the penalty that we deserve for our sin, and invited us into your family. And you call us your sons and your children. You give us an inheritance, and you make a down payment on that inheritance by giving us the Holy Spirit with which we are sealed for the day of redemption. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here who has never experienced the freedom and joy and new life and new identity that can be theirs in Christ, that today, if they hear his voice, they hear you, you speaking to their heart right now, that today would be the day of salvation, that they would not turn aside and say maybe later, but that today would be the day of salvation and that you would receive them and welcome them and forgive them and cleanse them, sanctify them, make them wholly yours. And Father, I pray for the, those of us who have known you for many years, that we might love every person whom you love and invite them in to experience the joy and freedom and cleansing and new identity that we possess. And Father, we thank you in Jesus' name. And we ask for your Spirit's power. Amen.